The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Anti-Modernist Reader on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin. This episode, I'm joined by Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor at St. Gertrude the Great Parish, Westchester, Ohio. Hello, Father. Thank you for joining us. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Father, we, we spoke just before the show, and you have a, a cold today, so thank you very much for uh, soldiering on, and, uh, get, and hopefully we'll get through this show no problem. Yes, if if my voice sounds a little bit lower, maybe like a Russian baritone or something like that. So, uh, <laughs> people should not think that I've been replaced by my evil twin. It's the real me, <laughs> which I guess is evil enough. <laughs> well, mischievous, I'd say, not evil. In this episode, we are going to be discussing an article written by Father in 2005. In the September to November 2005 issue of The Remnant, Chris Ferreira issued a five-part critique of Sedevacantism entitled A Challenge to the Sedevacantist Enterprise. Central to Mr. Ferreira's argument was that the Novus Ordemise is not evil and that Vatican II taught no false doctrines. This is surprising, to say the least, for readers of such publications even as The Remnant, The Wanderer, Catholic Family News and Christian Order. Never mind listeners to the Restoration Radio Network. Michael Mack, editor of The Remnant, graciously invited Father Chicada to respond to Mr. Ferreira's article, as not a little criticism had been made of Father's writings in particular. In this show, we will discuss Father's retort. Does that about adequately present what we're going to talk about, Father? Um, Yes, I think it does. Um, The uh, Remnant, of course, has been... uh, uh, quite anti-Sedevacantus throughout its whole history. And uh, Christopher Ferreira had done an earlier article against Sedevacantism for the remnant, at least one before this, and then he did a, a whole series. In any event, uh, I decided to acquiesce to Mr. Matt's request, and he limited me to 3,000 words, which I suppose, given the editorial uh, slant of his magazine against Sedevacantism was um, rather generous, but uh, in any event, I took the opportunity to uh, put together a short article that compressed the difficulties with the resistance position that Pius X Society and, and outfits like the Remnant follow, uh, the difficulties with their position, and then uh, to propose Sedevacantism as a um, uh, solution to the problems inherent in their own position. Mm-hmm. I'd like to uh, start off with uh, you in your inimitable style. Uh, as a footnote, and uh, as usual with your articles, they are littered with footnotes, uh, references to canonists, saints, theologians, doctors, popes. But in one of the footnotes, on the very first page, of, if you're reading this in the Anti-Modernist Reader, in 2005, 6th of October issue of The Wanderer, Mr. Ferreira states that, quote, Vatican II presented no new doctrine, so it could hardly have presented false doctrine. What traditionalists really oppose is not doctrine as such, but ambiguities capable of heterodox interpretation. In short, traditionalists oppose non-doctrinal novelties masquerading as doctrine. What you said, Father, is 
This is a new insight. The Vatican II as a doctrinal masquerade party. My guess is that Ratzinger came dressed as Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> I do things like that so people read the footnotes. <laughs> yeah, if you if you miss the if you miss the footnotes, you miss some of the juiciest stuff. You've got to read it all. <laughs> well, the um, actually is quite an amazing statement that uh, that uh, Pete Veer and that uh, other people have made to back away from the idea of uh, uh, Vatican II is actually presenting doctrine. But we'll get into that in a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a bit further, further on down into the start of the article, uh, you talk about the common ground of traditionalists. And the two things that you point out is that the new mass, as well as much post-Vatican II legislation is evil and harmful to the faith. That's something that most of us agree on. And that number two, the teachings of Vatican II and the post-Vatican II hierarchy on ecumenism, religious liberty, collegiality in the church, or the new ecclesiology, often contradict pre-Vatican II teachings and at least fall under the heading of doctrinal error, a general term for all doctrine at variance with the truths of the faith. So for Mr. Ferreira to say that there was nothing fundamentally wrong with Vatican II in its essence is a very, very surprising thing for somebody to say who, who's writing for a, a, at least a, a quasi-traditionalist publication. Well, yes, indeed it is, because uh, the uh, the things that, that we've listed here, religious liberty, collegiality, ecumenism, the nature of the church, uh, and so on, are teachings that the people who are generally lumped together under the category of uh, traditionalists, uh, object to. People will not say that they're heresy, uh, many of them won't, but they certainly will say that they're, they're, they represent a type of doctrinal error. And that's part of the common ground. If you don't believe that there's really any doctrinal error uh, present in the post-Vatican II teachings, there's no reason to object to them. And you should go along with them and, and just uh, follow them as they are taught in the New Catechism. So it, it was a little bit surprising to hear this from Mr. Ferreira, but I assume that in the case of most traditionalists, they would agree that the, the list that we've laid down is at least error. Father, why do you think it is that a lot of people, uh, a lot of traditional Catholics in the traditional Catholic world, just won't admit, Just they seem to be the incapable or unwilling to admit that the problems of Vatican II are heretical? Well, because I think of the consequences, that people who, who think clearly um, about uh, issues like this, who say that it, they say that if I say it was heretical, then I run into a real problem. And the problem is that it looks like the authority of the church is teaching error, or is teaching heresy. And I know, even if I don't have that big of a theological formation, that this is something that's contrary to the promises of Christ. So I don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. That basically means that we end up in this position of recognize and resist. And it's something that we talk about a lot now. I have spoken to. Uh, to somebody in the uh, SSPX uh, resistance, uh, uh, what I would call an SSPX fundamentalist. And he doesn't like the term recognize and resist because I, I don't know why, he, he just doesn't like it. So rather than recognize and resist, and I've said this on shows before, I would prefer to call them the indifference because they are simply indifferent as to the identity of the Pope or his authority. They think it's a matter of opinion. It doesn't really matter what you think either way, just don't make it don't, you know, whatever you do, don't decide where you're going to mass based on that. Sure. Um, sure. So on the sort of... The, the ironic thing about that, though, is that the R&R, &R, the, the recognize and resist, uh, that's actually a term that I coined. I coined it in this article. <laughs> well, I think, that's, uh, and, I think that's why this particular chat might not like it. <laughs> well, uh, perhaps, but it's... it's um, <laughs> It's interesting to see that many of the people who are in that camp have accepted it. Uh, the um, 
the two writers for The Remnant, um, John Salsa and Robert Sisko, put out a 700-page book on sativacontism. And they actually have a chapter or two talking about why one has to identify, uh, why, why one should accept the recognize and resist position. So obviously they're not resisting that idea. <laughs> they needed a set of accountants for, to define their position for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm not sure exactly if they knew the origin of it, but it sure was funny to see that they used it. <laughs> um. uh, let's talk about the recognize and resist position. You start off, well, there's, we ha- it seems that all the shows I do, we have to talk about this, but let's go over it again. Let's just dismiss that old idea that the only thing you have to believe as a Catholic is ex-cathedra declarations from from the Pope. Why is it that that position is wrong? Well, uh, because the uh, bulk of what we understand in terms of of truth and of Catholic teaching uh, is, is not formulated in documents that have the stamp uh, infallible on them, or ex cathedra on them. So people have have taken refuge in that idea that there's no obligation to adhere to something unless it has that sort of a stamp on it from a pope uh, or a council as a way of trying to explain what they see after Vatican II, that there are all these, these errors and these evils that have come from men who appear to be the hierarchy of the Church. So there's this this tendency to make the obligation that you have to adhere to doctrine and, and to laws to make that as narrow as possible to try to avoid confronting the authority question. I mean, you know, it is understandable because people of my generation uh, were uh, schooled in the idea that you have to submit yourself to the Roman pontiff and uh, to what he teaches, and that he is uh, infallible in in faith and morals, but generally the discussion would go on from there to ex-cathedra statements. So I understand where these these people are coming from, but there's more to the obligation that the Catholic has, as we shall see, uh, as the discussion rolls along, than just simply that. For me, it also comes down to, and I've mentioned this in the show before, but it also comes down to the Roman martyrs. There were no ex-cathedra statements, but they had such depth of faith in the universal ordinary magisterium that they wouldn't sacrifice to the Roman gods, and they went to horrible deaths because of it. There were no, absolutely no solemn papal pronouncements telling them what they did and did not have to believe. If your Catholicism was based only on ex-cathedra statements, they could have they could have legitimately doubted and said, well, actually, there, there are no solemn papal pronouncements saying that we have to believe this sort of stuff, so... You know, I mean, what's what's the problem? Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. The the majority of stuff in the catechism comes from universal, ordinary magisterium. If you take uh, something, take an issue like uh, abortion, that uh, there is no, as it were, ex cathedra statement that, that say that that is a mortal sin. But everyone knows it's a mortal sin because it's it's been taught as such from universal ordinary magisterium. So there are lots of doctrines like that. Mm-hmm. If we move on to the first part of the uh, the recognized resistance section, you talk about the authority of the church cannot promulgate an evil right of mass, and there are two objective facts in this: that the novus ordo is an incentive to impiety. And the next one is that the Pope possesses supreme legislative authority from Christ himself. So if the Pope has promulgated this incentive to impiety with the supreme legislative authority from Christ himself, we have two contradictory statements there that that those two, they can't dance together, that they just don't work. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The uh, uh, on the face of it, most trads would say yes. Of course, the new mass is something that is very harmful. Uh, that it's poisonous to the Catholic faith. That's what Archbishop Lefevre said. That uh, it's a very terrible thing, and that we have no obligation to 
accepted no obligation to use it because, in fact, it is is so wicked and it is so sacrilegious. So, in the the real order, they admit this. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is uh, once again you come up against the question of the uh, authority of the Pope, and rather to to promulgate a universal disciplinary law, and the Pope certainly has that power, and. Uh, a liturgical laws for the Roman Rite are certainly universal disciplinary laws, and uh, thirdly, the common teaching of uh, Catholic theology is that these are therefore infallible uh, because otherwise the faith of the whole Church would be adversely affected. So you have uh, those three points, as it were, on um, uh, one side of the issue. So uh, traditionalists are going to have uh, difficulty reconciling uh, those three points with the evil that they see of uh, the new Mass. But it is, in fact, a, a fact that the, the Church cannot promulgate an evil right of the Mass, uh, because that would be... Uh, that would lead men away from Christ and um, lead them away from salvation and the truths of the Catholic faith. And uh, this is this is something that is uh, absolutely certain. The way to that people have tried to get out of this is uh, to say, that, well, it just applied to the Roman rite, so it wasn't a universal disciplinary law. But uh, that is is false in terms of uh, the distinctions made in canon law, that uh, it is a law that uh, applies everywhere in the world, and that is a universal uh, universal disciplinary law. So uh, the other argument against it from the R&R camp was that, well, the Pope uh, somehow made an error in promulgating the new right of the Mass, but that uh, that position we've refuted as well, because the legislation of Paul VI in 1969 and 1970 made it absolutely clear that he was promulgating it. So you come up against that 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 problem of uh, the infallibility again of uh, universal disciplinary laws. Mm-hmm. And again, you point out in the footnotes further that both. The SSPX and Michael Davies have taken slightly different views on this. Well, actually, completely opposing views on this. Um, that's a, yeah, as an understatement, to say the least. The SSPX have argued that the new mass was evil, but was invalidly promulgated. While Michael, yes. Davies, while Michael Davies argued that it was validly promulgated, but not evil. So, <laughs> so if it's validly promulgated and not evil, what are we doing here? <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. Well, he, and by the way, that debate was conducted in the remnant. They they went uh, back and forth uh, uh, over those issues. Uh, both sides, of course, realizing the difficulty in affirming both of those statements that it was evil and that it um, was validly promulgated. So it was interesting to watch them try to evade the consequences. Davies said that, well, the uh, Latin form of the Novus Ordo was really what Paul VI promulgated, and there was nothing wrong um, really with that. It, it had a couple of omissions, etc. But uh, I wrote a whole book that proved the contrary work of human hands, that in fact the New Mass is uh, something that destroyed Catholic doctrine in the minds of, of Catholics throughout the world, and that it was an incentive to impiety. And uh, it was the Latin rite that I examined, and not just the vernacular rite. But these, again, are evasions, uh, an attempt to, to uh, evade the consequences of uh, what people see in front of them, which is, in fact, the new Mass is evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you, Sooner or later, you'd think that they would get tired of uh, squirming, but obviously not, not yet. No. Let's move on to the next section in which we return to the Universal Order Magisterium and we talk about the idea that um, Catholics must adhere to the teachings of the Universal Order Magisterium and in fact Pius IX condemned the idea 
that the only thing we had to believe was uh, ex cathedra statements in the syllabus of errors in Quantacura. Yes, and uh, that is something that everyone should know. But that uh, particular principle that Pius IX laid down is unfortunately one that um, many of the, the so many Catholics after the Second Vatican Council just ignored the, that uh, they had this this mythical um, or there's this myth that uh, only if something had the infallible ex cathedra stamp were you obliged to adhere to it. But of course, that is absolutely not the case. You quote De Blanchy uh, in which he talks about what would qualify as universal de magisterium, and he says by the express teaching habitually imparted outside of formal definitions by the Pope and the body of bishops dispersed throughout the world. So who can really argue that Vatican II is not taught by the so-called Pope and the so-called body of bishops universally and throughout the world? Would it therefore not qualify as universal de magisterium? If you take Dublanchi's principle, and of course it's... You know, ironclad in terms of traditional Catholic, or of, of uh, traditional Catholic in the sense of pre-Vatican II uh, Catholic uh, dogmatic theology. When you apply the principle on universal ordinary magisterium, then the triad is uh, faced. A traditional Catholic is faced with having to accept teachings that uh, he uh, is convinced or suspects are errors. Uh, one of the examples that I give in the article is the uh, catechism, uh, the JP2 catechism. JP2 made it very clear when he promulgated the catechism that uh, it was something that was to apply universally, that its teachings were to be applied throughout the whole church, uh, and, and so on, that the teachings of the catechism, uh, his catechism, were uh, sort of the gold standard for the uh, preservation of the Catholic faith, that they were a sure teaching, a sure norm, uh, etc. So you have in a catechism that's promulgated universally, if someone is a uh, true pope, then that participates in the universal ordinary magisterium because everyone teaches it everywhere. The difficulty is that... uh, uh, trads know and, and have heard that this catechism teaches false false doctrines. And so the, the SSPX publications and the Remnant Catholic Family News, etc., they've um, printed critique after critique of the teachings of the new catechism, saying that there's this error, there's that error, this is false, etc. So you uh, see them come up against a fundamental conflict there between what they are saying and uh, what is being taught by uh, the, the people who supposedly are in authority in the church, the post, uh, post-Vatican two popes and the bishops. Mm-hmm. So we then go on to talk about the uh, doctrinal decrees of the Holy Sees. There's something that really leapt off the page for me here and it's it's obvious but when you see it in black and white like that it's worth reading again you quote from Salaveri Salaveri says out of reverence due to God who governs through the sacred hierarchical authority of the church so in effect it is God who governs the church through the hierarchy so when so when you see things uh, like, you know, uh, I don't know, Mr. B lighting a menorah or, you know, offering beach balls and football jerseys on the ultra Mary major and seeing the bishops dancing at Cape of Cabana, you, let's just remember, you know, if you're still, uh, if you're still under the impression that these people may have uh, authority in the church, let's just remember that uh, God is governing through the sacred hierarchical authority of the church. People don't people don't think about that, but it, it doesn't hurt to clarify that every now and then. No, it's, it, it uh, certainly doesn't, and that's one of the other consequences: is that by continuing to ins- insist that these people possess true authority from Jesus Christ, uh, you are in effect, practically speaking, uh, promoting 
a course of action that undermines the authority that these people, the, the, the Pope is supposed to have, and the reverence that a Catholic is supposed to have for him. So you are going, in effect, in the opposite direction of reverence for authority by insisting that these people uh, do possess it. Mm-hmm. It's necessary to authority or necessary to obedience to authority to submit to it. If you don't submit mm-hmm. to an, if you don't submit to an authority, well, what's the point in any authority? Why would sure. it exist at all? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it renders the the whole word of authority completely meaningless. We then move on quickly to the fact that public resistance simply is not supported by any uh, doctors or theologians. The, the whole the whole idea of publicly resisting a pope simply simply does not exist. Now, Father, could, could you walk us through this particular section? But yes, it, it doesn't exen- uh, doesn't exist in the sense that the R and R camp. Uh, wants to try to uh, apply it. Well, as traditionalists, what uh, we uh, resist and what we turn our backs on are evil laws and an uh, evil right of worship and harmful right of worship uh, that uh, uh, and uh, doctrines and teachings that uh, are contrary to what the Church has taught. In the, the case of the, the uh, laws. These are universal laws. And secondly, in the case of the doctrine, uh, these appear to be universal ordinary magisterium if you grant authority to the people who are at the top of the conciliar hierarchy. So you have those two things. So you resist uh, official doctrinal pronouncements, and you uh, resist universal disciplinary laws. The quotes and uh, and the defense that the recognize and resist people have come up with is that, well, uh, that there is a justification for resisting authority. Uh, however, what the authors that they cite are talking about is the refusal of an evil command there's a difference between an evil command, uh, do this, that, or the other thing, and a universal disciplinary law. Uh, so, in effect, the justification for the resistance position is one that's that's based on apples and oranges. They're uh, trying to uh, use quotes that uh, justify the resistance to evil commands as a way to uh, get out of uh, adhering to universal ordinary magisterium or to universal disciplinary laws. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the, the fundamental difficulty here. Uh, for instance, Peter and Paul, the issue, the question of Peter and Paul, is um, uh, uh, Paul correcting Peter is the issue of fraternal correction. And uh, or when you apply that principle, let's say, a little more uh, broadly, the resistance to a command from a pope who tells you to do something, orders you to do something uh, individually that you know uh, is evil, that is different from what traditionalists are resisting. Mm-hmm. And you make the point very clearly that this fraternal correction cannot be public. It cannot be done in public. An individual cannot publicly denounce or resist a pope. And you also uh, point out that Cajetan, Vittoria, Bellamin and Suarez pointed out that the public resistance to a pope must be done by councils and not individuals. So the theologians and, and doctors support the position as well and reject the idea that an individual person could publicly resist the pope. Yes, and, and the the origin origins of of uh, the the uh, quotes of the theologians that you mentioned were ones that were connected with the dispute over what was called conciliarism. What was the uh, power of a council vis-a-vis the power of uh, a pope? 
and what are the circumstances what are the circumstances in which council could offer some uh, some sort of resistance to the pope so again you end up with apples and um, you end up with apples and oranges and the same quotes have been floating around since the 1970s and uh, they're always the same quotes there's uh, a quote from uh, Vittoria, there's a quote from Cajetan, there's a quote from uh, Suarez, and all of these come from a, um, a book uh, written in, in Portuguese by uh, a man named Da Silveira, uh, and Da Silveira did a study of uh, the Novus Ordo Missae and the question of laws and infallibility of the Pope, and he put uh, together these different quotes on resistance, but the these have been, been cherry picked and repeated endlessly by uh, traditionalist authors uh, since the 1970s as justification for not submitting themselves to the authority of the man they recognize as the Roman Pontiff. But in fact, the quotes address issues that are entirely different from that. So this is really. It's just reading one of your quotes about not dis- not uh, not disobeying uh, the universal, uh, but rather res- resisting a, an evil individual or, or an, e- an evil individual command. And you've, you've and I'll, I'm going to read it out. You've said, for example, if the Pope told a Monsignor, tell Fatima to Disney, Monsignor, dynamite St. Peter's, and then bring me another blonde chorus girl. That's, <laughs> that's the kind of individual evil command that one would be perfectly uh, perfectly justified in resisting. But, uh, yes, and I, I I have to say that I didn't find that example in Cajetan. <laughs> so. um, well, I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> okay, so once we've been through all of that, really we're left with we're left with three choices. And I'm going to quote directly from the article here. The first choice is that the new Mass and Vatican II teachings are Catholic, which would lead us to stop resisting, check out that Saturday in Obersordo at at St. Teod's, homeschool your son Marcel with that new catechism, and sign up little Philomena for altar girls. (laughs) The second choice is that the authority of the Catholic Church is defected, which means Go Episcopalian. Great music and no confession. <laughs> and the third choice is that the new Mass and Vatican II teachings are not Catholic and so could not have come from the authority of the Church. Welcome to... And we'll break yeah, that. Vacantism. <laughs> <laughs> we would like to uh, remind you... That that you are listening to Resisting the Pope, Certificantism and Frankenchurch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Father Anthony Chicada. And today we've been discussing the problems discussed in Father's 2005 article. We want to remind you that this anti-modernist reader show is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. And so, Father, back to the S word that the indifference dare dare not speak. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been through... I was just going to say, Father, we've been through our three choices and we've ended up at the S word. What what to do now? Exactly. (laughs) So the... um, What's gotten us here, uh, what's gotten us to this point, is to apply very strictly the general theological principles about the infallibility of the Church and her universal disciplinary laws and the infallibility of the universal ordinary magisterium and the duty of, of Catholics toward the Roman pontiff. So when you compress all of those principles, you line them up, um, and you line those up on one side, and the facts about the New Mass and the post-Vatican II teachings on the other, how they 
or evil and how they represent errors, this is what you have to come to. There's, there's not really a third option that uh, is open to you. And uh, so here we are at Sadie Vacantism. But Father, you, you've just said that you've applied those rules very strictly. Where's your, um, you know, it sounds to me like you're a bit sure of your doctrine. Where's your sense of encounter and discernment? <laughs> I, I think I, I lost that back in 1975. <laughs> <laughs> Leave that in the bin with all the other rubbish. Okay. Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The position is that one doesn't need to be a set of accountants to accept that the evils and the errors proposed and practiced within the Novus Ordo are proof positive that the promulgators of the same evils and the errors lost their authority. That's essential. That's the that, that's a sort of opening gambit. And we go on mm-hmm. to talk about um, heresy defined. And you talk about the idea that um, some people. Well, some people get get confused about what what exactly heresy is and and what it's made up of. So, could you please walk us through the three different types? Sure. And um, now, because I had a word limit here, I was forced to be very compressed and uh, to be very uh, accurate and precise in uh, what I said about the definition of heresy. So we start with the the definition from the code. A heretic is one who, after the reception of baptism, pertinaciously denies or doubts any of the truths to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. So that's your definition. And then, uh, rather than letting that stand on its own, you go to the writings of canonists who discuss it and who explain it. So the, the Candace Michel in the, the DTC, the uh, big French Dictionary of Catholic Theology, uh, says that when it comes to heresy, you must clearly distinguish between three problems. There's the dogmatic problem, which is heresy is a false doctrine, the moral problem, which is heresy is a sin, and the canonical problem, which is heresy as an ecclesiastical crime. Now, uh, our discussion goes from uh, from there, that uh, we need only discuss here really uh, points one and two, false doctrine and sin, because it's the Pope's public sin of heresy, uh, the sin against God's law, that strips him of Christ's authority. Now, that's a key distinction, because many anti-state of accountants writers, especially Michael Davies, tended to confuse the sin and the crime. A true pope can commit only the sin of heresy. He cannot commit the crime of heresy, because the crime of heresy is a creation of ecclesiastical law, and as a pope, he is above ecclesiastical law. So it's the sin of uh, heresy that uh, we're talking about. So what someone like Davies did is they confused the, the legal and uh, the moral issues uh, when they should have been clearly uh, kept separate. It's like saying so-and-so was a murderer. Well, uh, you know, we've, we've seen so-and-so slay someone in cold blood. So he's guilty of the sin of murder. He hasn't been yet convicted of the crime of murder and sentenced to jail. But um, uh, you start out with the sin. Mm -hmm. If 200 people saw a man kill another man in a shopping center or something, there are hundreds of witnesses, and the police come, the the perpetrator's drenched in blood, and he's... uh, He's very clearly guilty, and and he says to the police, "Yes, I'm glad I killed him when they arrested him." I mean, it it is he a murderer? Well, yeah, clearly he is. But the way that some of the sort of legalistic arguments that the recognised resist in different crowd put forward is that unless you've unless he's actually or until he has been to a law court and has been convicted by a judge, he's not formally, at least, a murderer. 
and therefore he can't be described as a murderer. But in the footnote on the page, it's something that something that you mentioned from uh, below. Uh, you quote him in, in which he says he's talking about people who who commit the sin of heresy. Um, he says he would automatically lose pontifical power. He's talking about the Pope because having become an unbeliever, he puts himself outside of the church and importantly, by his own will. Now, unless you subscribe to the crazy mentificantist position that he doesn't know what he's doing, he doesn't know what the truth is, he has no idea of objective truth, so therefore he can't possibly commit the sin, and it's not, poss- you know, it's not possible. Unless you subscribe to that position, common sense dictates that if you saw the man in the, in the shopping centre murder the guy, he's done that as much of his own will as a heretic has put himself outside of the church, whether he be a layman or the Pope. Yes, and the presumption is uh, in uh, ecclesiastical law, the moral law, and in the civil law, certainly, is that, well, it's that your external actions uh, reflect uh, knowledge and reflect intention. And uh, that, uh, you know, is, 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 uh, especially something as obvious as, um, you know, not killing people. So that um, the your 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 external actions and words are presumed to uh, be concordant with what's going on inside you. Mm-hmm. It's common sense, really. You you see, <laughs> you see some people behave in a certain way. You assume well that either they're insane, in which case they would be barred from the office of the pontificate anyway, mm-hmm. or they, or they intend to do that, and they know what they're yeah. doing. Yes. We move on to Doctrine Denied, in which you point out that the teaching must be an article of divine and Catholic faith that the Church has authentically proposed as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a prior, as we've said before, a prior ex cathedra statement is not necessary. Now, in the, I mean, never mind Mr. B, let's, let's look at people like JP2 or Ratzinger or Montini or uh, Roncalli before him, everything that they've done, the, the doctrines that they've denied are clear. C- could you talk a little bit about this, uh, about the, the doctrines being denied and what that means? Well, the the point that um, Michelle makes is that uh, so you don't have to have this ex cathedra definition that um, if a, a truth is explicitly taught in the universal ordinary magisterium. Uh, that is sufficient for it to be authentically uh, proposed. So you have to uh, adhere it. Uh, you ha- have to adhere to what is uh, to what is proposed. So the uh, a person who is a heretic, the authors tell us, can deny a doctrine either in explicit or equivalent terms, either through a contradictory or contrary proposition. So. The, so, for instance, uh, we don't profess that Christ is God-man, and that's something that's de fide. If you say that Christ is not the God-man, that's a contradictory proposition. And if you say that, well, Christ is a pure man or Christ is an angel, uh, that's a contrary proposition. And so it's under the second heading all the time of contrary uh, propositions that the modernists operate. And they... Uh, deny or doubt a doctrine, uh, as we will see in the, the question on the, uh, the unity of the church, through um, contrary propositions. That they, they, they use these uh, propositions or these statements to deny, uh, in effect, what is defined Catholic teaching, a part of Revelation. In the, the, the next uh, paragraph, you talk about the sin or the pertinacity, and you point out clearly, quoting uh, Vance Fidel, that the a lengthy trial and a declaratory sentence for the sin and the pertinacity of heresy is not necessary. Could you briefly explain why this is? Uh, yes, because the um, especially in the cleric, you're presumed to know the contents of 
the Catholic faith, and existence of the sin of heresy is um, one thing. Uh, the canonical crime is another. Uh, for the canonical crime, any canonical crime, to be convicted of it, there are, I think, 11 excusing causes that you can, that you could come up with in uh, your own defense. But that's only for the crime. That's only for the crime. Uh, and what Michelle is saying is that it's not necessary to go through this uh, rigmarole before the sin, uh, before the sin really uh, exists. That it's sufficient, you know, that you know the existence of what the church teaches on a point, and then you refuse to submit to what it is. And it is in that that the the sin of heresy consists. Yeah, I'm very sorry. I said you both advanced without you don't. You, you both, Michelle. With those two points in mind, the idea that ex cathedra statement is not necessary, as you know, we seem to be beating that drum, but let, let's make sure we establish that. And the idea mm-hmm. that a, a lengthy trial and a declaratory sentence are not necessary. We then move on to, I think, one of those words that it's sort of it's sort of famous in 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 sort of a cantist in. <laughs> In the set of a campus t- camp, it's 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 famous, and I, I believe you coined it, Father. But um, let's let's talk about Frankenchurch. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> We're a little late for Halloween, but uh, <laughs> well, better late than never. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's okay. Let's uh, to this heresy you put you point out. This heresy posits a people of God and a Church of Christ, not identical with the Roman Catholic Church, and broader than it, a Franken Church created from elements, oh, now we're getting into those new modernist words, aren't we, of the true Church that are possessed either, or fully, oh yes, definitely, by Catholics, or partially by heretics and schismatics. So this is the new, this is effectively the new ecclesiology, that's what we're talking about. It is, uh, Let's talk about Let's talk about Frankenchurch and all of the uh, all of the horrors of this monster. If you'd like to just walk us through it, please, further. <laughs> uh, please turn a light on in the room. Okay, <laughs> don't sit in a dark room. Yeah, send, uh, well, your, send your little children out at this point. The um, uh, the idea of a new theology of Church was something that I had heard about in the um, modernist seminary uh, when I was there in the sixties and seventies. I remember the pr- professors uh, emphasizing this this idea of like a different theology of what it means to be church. They they always dropped uh, definite articles. So the uh, what they were talking about was this uh, a new ecclesiology uh, of Vatican II. So you have this this new uh, terminology. So the, the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, and uh, then beyond uh, this uh, subsistence, there is a larger. There's a people people of God to which all who are baptized belong. So when you see a discussion of this in the JP2 Catechism. They speak, first of all, of the people of God, and then you get down to the idea of the Church, uh, the Catholic Church, and the, the subsistence of the true Church of Christ and the Catholic Church. So it's all of the slippery language. And this theology was, was originated by and developed at Vatican II by Ratzinger, uh, the young theologian Ratzinger, and it was something that he consistently... Uh, promoted when he was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and uh, after he was elected as well. So uh, you have lingo like this. Schismatic uh, bodies are particular churches, united to the Catholic Church by close bonds. The Church of Christ is present and operative in churches that reject the papacy. Uh, The universal church is the body of particular churches. There are numerous spheres of belonging to the Church's people of God and of the bond that exists with it. That was a JP2-ism. Systematic mm-hmm. churches have wounded existence. 
the universal church becomes present uh, in the particular church with all her essential elements. So there's pages and pages of this stuff uh, that's appeared. <laughs> and then uh, if all of that is not bad enough, you get the same thing in the JP2 code of, of canon law that you, one becomes a member of the people of God by baptism. The whole people of God participates in the office of Christ. The sole church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Christ's body, the church is wounded. The, the Christ spirit uses schismatic and heretical bodies. Um, uh, these churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation. So, you know, there you go, Episcopalians, right? Uh, yeah. You know, no confession and great music. So it's it's all used by the Spirit of Christ. So there's pages and pages of this stuff uh, that um, has has come out since the Vatican Council in um, official teachings. So the the next question is, okay, we were confronted with that. We know that there is, is something wrong with it. So what exactly does, what article of the Catholic faith then does all this, this verbiage, uh, this Frankenchurch verbiage, doubt or deny? And uh, what it doubts or denies is the article of divine and Catholic faith, I believe in one church, which we uh, recite uh, every Sunday in every major feast. So the, it's, it's, it's the uh, unity and unicity of uh, the Church uh, that is denied through all of this language. Because the true Church, its Catholic teaching, is undivided in herself and is separated from any other. So that's what Franken Church denies. Uh, you can see the contrary teaching of, uh, in the writings of, of uh, previous popes and previous magisterial statements on this this notion of the unity of the church yeah and you quote particularly the other 13th and Pius IX they both say it in many different places and they really hammer it home and I recommend people go and, and read the article we're not going to go through all, all of the quotations here but um it's well worth it's well worth reading it you know if you're sort of thinking around this subject and you're you're not quite sure yet it's well worth going and seeing what these popes actually say and of course, again, in, in the footnote, in one of the footnotes, you point out that it contradicts the very idea of extra ecclesiastical outside of the church, there is no salvation. If, if all of these churches are means, means of salvation, then you deny that straight away. And, and that is, as you know, that Pius IX said is a dogma. Yeah, a most well known Catholic dogma, like you said. Yeah. Having gone through all of those quotations uh, which you, which you include for, for for the sake of making it very very clear that fundamentally there's nothing there's nothing that can be argued against against the position we go back to sin and pertinacity and the post-conciliar popes and we talk about the the sin of heresy requires no canonical warnings for pertinacity all that one needs to do is A, know the rule of the faith, and B, refuse to submit to it. Formal heresy is then complete, because the willed opposition to the magisterium constitutes pertinacity. You then go on to uh, say, Cardinal Bilo put it still more simply, formal heretics are those to whom the authority of the church is sufficiently known. Now, who could possibly deny that every single one of the posts Vatican to quote popes unquote did know very clearly and sufficiently the truths of the church well precisely and it was something that you uh, learned in catechism as a kid and it was something that you studied in uh, the seminary in the theologate uh, and uh, that uh, all you had to do is pick up a book on the teaching of the Catholic Church to realize what this is. So it, it can't be, uh, you can't say they did not know. You can't try to make that as a particular uh, excuse. 
and the canonists are clear also in the, in the case of, of um, clerics that there's always the presumption that a, a cleric, uh, because of his seminary education, that he knows the rule of faith. And the people who try to say that the post-conciliar popes are exempt, as it were, from the consequences of uh, their denials of different articles of uh, the Catholic faith, uh, they are proposing something that, that flies in the face of reality. You know, you're going to say that the JP2 uh, did not know what the article of the Catholic faith, uh, Credo Nunum Ecclesiam, meant, or that Ratzinger didn't know it. He was the man who constructed the whole ideology that undercut it. So the the, the uh, idea is that you uh, that there is uh, a uh, presumption naturally of uh, uh, responsibility and sufficient knowledge, and that to pretend that you need something else is really contrary to common sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you point out very clearly the post-conciliar papes were former academic theologians, seminary professors, cardinal archbishops, and curialists. Do you really think such men did not know the rule of faith in the church? And then you go on to say, or do you really think that professor, doctor, theologian, peritus, cardinal, congregation for the doctrine of the faith, prefect, superbrain, Joseph Ratzinger did not know that the universal ordinary magisterium, Pius the ninth, the thirteenth, Pius the eleventh, Pius the twelfth, countless other popes, the church fathers, and the whole edifice of Catholic theology taught that all who rejected even one point of the church's doctrine were outside her communion and alien to her. That Ratzinger did not know that Frankenchurch overthrew the previous teaching. And then you then ask if you believe that. I have a bridge to show you over the tide. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly it. And, you know, it's the same thing with, with Bergoglio. Now, he's obviously not a super brain uh, in any way, shape, or form. But <laughs> no, I don't, the, I don't think anybody could legitimately uh, accuse him of that. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, from his public statements... Uh, just from what he denies, you can tell that he knows the the, the true teaching, because he he constantly undermines it. So uh, the uh, you know and his 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 uh, crude and and his his uh, uh, obvious way is uh, he he knows what the real teaching is, but he denies it and and uh, undermines it. In fact, didn't he say? Uh, at one point, that well, I'm going to say something which uh, may be heretical. I'm not yeah, really sure, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, what, yeah. what more do you want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say something that might, might sound heretical, I think is what you said, yeah. But yeah, but, yeah. He, but, yeah but the attitude was was exactly that, but I'm going to say it anyway, so it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, yeah, it, it doesn't. The, the other odd thing when it comes to this, this pertinacity, uh, question, is that the people who criticize state of Vacantism have the idea that somehow that you have to have an orthodoxy buddy, that you have to have <laughs> someone who gives you a three warnings and says, uh, listen, Carol, or uh, listen, Yosef, or listen, Jorge, that uh, <laughs> what you've said there is heretical. And then... Um, Jorge says, I'm going to say it anyway. And you say, well, okay, that's, this is the second warning, you know, that you can't say that. And then Jorge has uh, to say that, well, uh, this is what I believe. And then the third warning, you say, well, the third time, and he affirms it anyway, he says, you know, get lost. And then, you know, poof, at that point, he falls into heresy. <laughs> and that's how you get pertinacity. But that's, that, of course, is an absurdity. Uh, the idea that that uh, you know you have to have sort of feedback from your orthodoxy buddy, uh, oh, before you can be guilty of the sin of heresy. So, so it's a sort of three strikes and you're out rule. Is, is that it? Three strikes and you're out. Very well spoken for an Englishman, I have to say. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> I know, yeah, we know a little bit. I think we, we do use that phrase. We do understand what it means. Oh, you do? Um, oh, God. Although probably not, not in the... I'm going to show my ignorance now. Is it baseball? Is that baseball? It is baseball. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, you I thought it was missed the ball it. three times, and uh, you are out. Next batter comes up. Yeah, you see, English, you know, in cricket, you can miss the ball all day, and no, nobody cares. People, people enjoy watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the difference. Coming on to the end of coming on to the end of this article, because I, I know that your your voice is going to be uh, struggling now. Obviously, you know, let's let's wrap this one up. So, who decides? He decides this. He decides whether whether Jorge or Carol or Joseph or uh, any of the others have uh, have stepped into heresy. Who who makes a judgment on this one? So the uh, answer is that you the faithful Catholic does because we have uh, is the same people who have judged that the new mass is evil is poison, is is uh, sacrilegious. Uh, the same people who decided that, no, they can't accept the false teachings of Vatican II on ecumenism, religious liberty, uh, etc. We've made that uh, determination that these things are either evil or contrary to the Catholic faith. And all you have to do is put the pieces together. Then, if we know what must be believed about the authority of the Church, the people who put these things together could not possibly have possessed it. They're not uh, true popes. They didn't uh, possess the authority from uh, uh, from Jesus Christ. And that is the explanation. We're led in a, a straight, um, uh, straight path to that conclusion, that the evil of um, the uh, new mass and the new disciplinary laws and the, the, the obvious errors of these uh, different new doctrines are like a a giant arrow uh, pointing back uh, at the post-conciliar pope saying, these men are not true popes. And how is that possible? Well, through heresy. And we've looked at the different heresies that uh, they adhere to, and we've come to the conclusion the theologians tell us they can't possibly possess the authority that they claim to possess. So judgment on their official act that we make. And the judgment, not in the legal sense, but we compare what the Church has always taught and believed before with what these people say, that it leads us to the uh, conclusion that we have to judge them as uh, in, in the sense of not possessing any authority and uh, treat them accordingly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a judgment that the, the point you make right at the very end, you say all traditionists, therefore, are really sort of accountists. It's just that they haven't all figured it out yet. And <laughs> because well, reality- I actually went to a lecture that Christopher Ferrara gave at the local Pius X church here. And uh, afterwards, I pointed that out to him, and I said it's like Rahner's theory of the anonymous Christian that actually you are an anonymous state of a contest and you don't know it, and it may save you in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I think that anybody who's resisted in some way the changes of Vatican II, that statement stands. They are state of a contest, they just haven't they haven't figured it out yet. And I think that, well, hopefully, you know, God willing, one day they will do. But have you anything else to uh, comment before we close this show? Are there anything else you'd particularly like to say? Um, well, yes, this, that that the um, article that uh, we've discussed tonight, um, Resisting the Pope, uh, State of Accountism, and Frankenchurch, was designed to be very compressed argument. To date, I, I have not seen uh, any of the anti-State of Accountist, any members of their camp, uh, write a uh, refutation uh, of it uh, in in. Uh, even indirectly. So I think that, that um, I encourage listeners to uh, read the article and try to understand the argumentation. It's ac- actually very simple. Once you say that there's something wrong with the changes, that they are evil or that they represent error, it, uh, the rest of Catholic theology leads you inexorably to, the, uh, to that conclusion. So I, I uh, recommend that people read and study the article. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's very short. It's very easy to read and it is very concentrated. And actually, uh, it's my belief that by giving you that 3000 word limit, they they actually did a, a very great service because this is uh, this is not a large cup of coffee. This is a set of Acantism espresso. You're uh, you're gonna get <laughs> you're gonna get a very a very small but very powerful shot of set of Acantism, and uh, well, I think it's I think it's I, I think that if if there were a canonist involved, he would say something about an excommunication latte sententiae. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> we can't, yeah, we can't resist those puns. Um, it wouldn't be a father, it wouldn't be a father Chicago show if we didn't have a play on words. So. Without a corny joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, father, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very very much for being my guest today. You know, we can all hear that your voice is struggling, so I wish you a speedy recovery. Um, you know, please go and get better. Uh, have some. I don't know lemsip or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, I don't know if you have lemsip in, in the states, but if you do have some of that, or the or the American equivalent, <laughs> um, we'll look for it. <laughs> and uh, continue, continue good success um, in the work you do at St. Gertrude the Great. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, and God bless you all. Thank you very much. Bye bye. If you have any questions for Father Chicada or feedback on this episode. We would love to hear from you. You can contact us at antimodernist at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments. We would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.